Welcome to the latest USGA Green Section podcast episode. I'm John Petrovsky, host and education manager in the Green Section. This month, we wanted to take a dive into the intersection of the environment and golf course management. So we spoke with Dr. Cole Thompson, who heads up the USGA Green Section research team. He gave us some great information on current research projects, how they benefit the future sustainability of the game, and all the environmental benefits provided by golf courses. It was a great conversation with a lot of information that I hope you'll enjoy. Dr. Cole Thompson, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Before we jump into the topic around Earth Day and kind of all the great environmental research you and the USGA are involved in, could you, for those who aren't familiar with you, could you just share a bit about your background and kind of the career journey that led you to the USGA? Yeah, sure thing, John. Happy to be here with you. So I, you know, I got interested in golf um, in high school. I played on the high school golf team and that led to me wanting to be around golf more. And so I got a summer job on the golf course, uh, picking the driving range, initially just for driving range tokens. Um, I didn't even get paid initially. But later, um, I got familiar with the various tasks and work that it takes to repair a golf course. Initially, it was just a summer job. I I went to college and was studying to be a math teacher, but I kept working on the golf course in the summer and was just continued to be interested in it. And so um, after my sophomore year, I transferred to Kansas State University and started studying agriculture and then got really into the science behind it and pursued master's degree and uh, and a PhD um, after that. And, um, you know, then I worked at a couple universities teaching and conducting research, and I had some extension responsibilities uh, interacting with golf courses and other people that grew turf to try to, you know, help them um, in ways that they needed. And uh, eventually, I, you know, this opportunity came up to come work with, um, you know, Dr. Mike Kenna, my, my predecessor at the USGA, and it was an opportunity that I couldn't really pass up. I felt at that point to have the chance to come um, work in the research program that funds so much important turf grass research. And so I, I took the plunge in 2018, and uh, it's been a wild ride ever since. I saw also in your bio a stint as a golf course assistant superintendent. Just curious when and where that was. It was in the transition between my, my bachelor's degree and my, my master's degree. So it was a summer and a fall, basically. I went into Topeka, Kansas, a public golf course, um, and, and yeah, it was a, about a 12-person crew, including the superintendent, the uh, equipment technician, and me. So it was a small crew, 18-hole public golf course. We did the best we could. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I think it's always important. Mike Wan has mentioned that even a short stint in being on the ground in the golf course maintenance world, it, it can really help inform later on, and it, it has for him at least. So, Cole, as director of research, you head up the USGA's Turf and Environmental Research Program, which was recently renamed after longtime CEO Mike Davis. Could you give us sort of a high-level overview of what the program is, how it works, what your funding levels are, and your role, and then some of the kind of key topics that you guys have all identified as sort of strategic initiatives for researchers to tackle? Yeah, absolutely, John. So the the Davis program uh, was was started in 1982, and before that, you know, the USJ has supported turf research since 
since the green section began in the 1920s with, with uh, you know, the initial chairpersons, Drs. Piper and Oakley, conducting research internally, and, and later others like James Monteith and, and Fannie Fern Davis and Fred Grau. I mean, there was a lot of people that were conducting research internally, but it was really, you know, as I understand it, under Fred Grau, where we started to decentralize a little bit and fund more um, university research. At that time, agriculture state universities were starting to expand their turf research programs and responsibilities of their faculty. So it was an opportunity to grow that support. And so that ship had began to sail in the in the post-war period, right? And then moving into the 60s and 70s, I think it increased a little bit more. And then there was just this recognition, you know, after some severe droughts in the late 70s in, in the West, and then, you know, claims that golf courses were damaging the environment, there was a recognition by leadership at the USGA that we really needed to, to tackle this a little bit harder with a more vested effort. And so the turf research program was started in 1982 to answer a lot of these questions and also organize all the work that had already been done. A big initiative that some people don't really know or a big goal was to organize the turf grass literature. And then it was, you know, to, to, to breed better grasses and to understand the ways that they grow and respond to stress so we can manage them better, right? And those were, in a nutshell, the initial goals. And so a research committee was established of university and, and industry scientists, you know, people like uh, Dr. Watson from Toro were on the initial committee, um, and Bill Benjafield. I mean, all these names from the, the archives and annals of the, of the green section and turf industry, they were really important to the industry and to the the, the beginnings of this research program. And so it was initially supposed to be a like a 10-year, 10, $10 million dollar program, right? But um, we sit here today, almost $50,000, 50 million, sorry, excuse me, $50 million invested since 1982 through through 2022. And we're continuing at that clip um, at about $2 million a year on average. We always like to see that increase when possible, but that's the typical annual, annual funding. And we operate essentially with a competitive annual call for proposals. So we continue to leverage all the very talented scientists that we have in our university system in the U.S. And so we put out this call for proposals and say, you know, this is what we think is important to advance sustainable golf course management. You know, give us your ideas uh, and, and what research you would like to conduct to to meet these initiatives. And then I meet with um, the committee of scientists. We still have a committee of 15 or so scientists, and and we talk about the research proposals and and decide, you know, if we think. One, if the project that's proposed is going to advance our initiatives, and then two, if we like it in, in that way, you know, is the way the project is designed, is it scientifically, you know, going to give us a robust answer to the question they're trying to ask? And so they're always, you know, really, really technical meetings and conversations, and it's fun to kind of dive into these projects and decide if we think they're going to help golf course management, uh, essentially. And so... We revisit, you know, every five or so years, we kind of revisit what we think the important topics are in golf course management. And, you know, right now, clearly water is, is, is high on everyone's radar. And so we have, we have called that out as a singular initiative to protect and conserve water resources. And then kind of our secondary initiative is just general, um, the general optimization of sustainable golf course management. So optimizing anything we do to manage a golf course. Uh, with with the playing conditions that we expect, and that that includes many things. That's a very broad topic. And then the third um, broad initiative is is essentially breeding, where we want to you know identify and then improve plant materials that we think will advance uh, golf course management. 
Yeah, Cole, just to kind of demonstrate the impact that USGA Research has, you recently authored a paper with Dr. Crydell from Missouri and your predecessor, Dr. Mike Kenna, on exactly what the impact of USGA-funded research is, the, the economic and environmental impact. Could you just uh, touch on that briefly and some of the numbers they, that came out of that peer-reviewed paper? Yeah, sure. It, th- that was a really fun project that I hope isn't over. I think it's something that we need to continually revisit. Essentially, you know, it's it's interesting to, to talk to, uh, you know, Mike Ken about this, because over the years, all the research that we've conducted, there's always the question of, you know, what's that getting us? And we can tell lots of interesting stories, you know, linking the research that we've done to work that other organizations do to, to benchmark the industry, and then to case studies and and kind of tell somewhat of a story of, of how the research that we funded has helped the golf industry. But we've never really had that, this kind of exact, you know, linear story of we invested this much and that returns this much to the industry. And so that was the genesis of this project in 2018 or so, actually right when I started. And so it was a really good way for me to get familiar with um, a lot of the research that, that I wasn't familiar with that the USGA has supported. And kind of over the years, there are six major areas where we think, you know, the USGA has has made the biggest impact for the golf industry. And so those areas are um, putting green construction, turf grass breeding, scheduling water with ET evapotranspiration-based um, irrigation, essentially weather data or water budgeting, using soil moisture sensors, advancing the use of naturalized areas. Um, and was that five or six? I can't remember, but it, th- there, there might have been there might have been one more in there that I missed. But those were the the areas that we thought were really important. And so we created um, a survey. Uh, with with the help of an of an external firm, and which of which Dr. Crydell is a consultant for uh, Fleshman Hillard, and we distributed this survey uh, with the help of the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America, and we essentially asked them if they're familiar with each of these strategies, and then asked them if they've used the strategy, and if they said yes to both of those, then we asked them, okay, so how much you know did you save in, on a list of resources with everything we could think of and said, how much did you save by adopting this practice compared to um, when you, before you use the practice. And, and then we analyzed that data, compared it to, you know, what we know from some GCSA surveys about maintenance budgets in the industry. And we came back with, you know, some pretty interesting numbers where over these six areas, you know, we think that the, the industry is saving about, Two billion dollars a year compared to the you know two million dollars that we invest, and so I think that's a a pretty big benefit to the industry. And so we've been happy to tell that story, and really it's been a way to encourage uh, the industry as a whole to continue to invest in research to make sure that we continue to push the industry in the right direction. And it, it, I always also like to acknowledge that. The USGA played a, a big role here in funding this research, but there's other organizations that have, uh, you know, similar research programs, and, and they're having some level of benefit comparative to, to what I just extolled. And so that's that's only a small amount of what the industry is doing from a research perspective to, to help, you know, in advanced golf course management. And I think that's important to recognize. And, and we've also got to acknowledge the superintendents and, and staff, the men and women that are taking care of golf courses and putting all of this knowledge into practice. And, you know, they're the ones that are that are really making a difference. So while the USGA has been, I think, an important leader, you know, it's an industry-wide effort to continue to um, advance sustainability. And, and I think the golf industry is really unique in that way. 
Cole, moving on into sort of how golf courses and the environment interact and the broader scope of research in this area, golf courses provide lots of benefits to communities, ecosystems, watersheds, some things that folks may not even realize. Can you talk about the Natural Capital Project and some results from that work that kind of demonstrate this aspect of golf courses and the environment? Yeah, that, that was a really interesting project and opportunity for the USGA. The, so the Natural Capital Group is a conglomerate of universities that essentially study the, the natural capital, as they call it, the, the, the things that our environment provides communities in, in a lot of different settings. And they were interested in, in applying their concepts and methodologies to, to golf and trying to understand the natural capital, as it were, that golf courses provide communities. And so this started you know, in 2017 or 18, and it was uh, essentially done at, mostly at the University of Minnesota with Drs. Eric Lonsdorf and, and Brian Horgan, who's now at Michigan State, and, and they took the approach to, to really understand the, you know, the ecosystem services that, that golf courses provide, and so it started with some, you know, some really good workshops with stakeholders to understand what questions were important. Um, and it, again, started really focused on the Twin Cities, you know, Minneapolis and St. Paul. But it later expanded to other U.S. cities that represent eco-regions, the important eco-regions in the U.S. And so we've gotten a really nice kind of snapshot or summary of of what how golf courses compare to other land uses. And so re- really the, the, the project was a compare it was exactly that it was a comparison of of golf courses if you took away a golf course and put something in its place what would the marginal value be of that golf course in other words what would the difference to the surrounding community be for important ecosystem services like biodiversity or mitigating urban heat islands or nutrient export from the watershed uh, carbon balances flood mitigation all of these types of things and so they they developed some really interesting methodology where when you do a project like this, you know, you have you have lots of data that you have to organize to to come to a clean conclusion that's that's easy for everybody to to understand. And and that's where the real value in my opinion is in this project is that they've they they took, you know, all the years of data that turf researchers and others have conducted where you you actually measure, you know, the amount of each one of these benefits to the surrounding area. And they're able to plug it into a data matrix along with information about what the land provides, you know, the vegetation, the soil, the climate, and then how it's managed. And then you're able to predict, you know, what the, you know, absolute whatever your metric is, absolute number would be for that ecosystem service. And then they developed this methodology where they call it a wallpapering technique, right? Where you, 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 if you imagine a map in your mind, John, and you've got a golf course there and you cut it out and remove it. And then you take all the data behind another land use, say a natural area, and you create a quilt patchwork over that void left by the golf course property. Then you can rerun the analysis and you can compare, you know, the two land uses. And so that was essentially how they how they went about this and in, in, in these different cities and these different ecosystem services. And kind of, the, you know, the take home is that from a standpoint for like, okay, something like nutrient export, golf courses export a, a, a little more nutrients than, than things like parks or naturalized areas where you don't fertilize at all, right? Um, but they export fewer nutrients than residential areas and industrial parks. Um, and then for things like heat islands and, and biodiversity or, or pollinator, habit, pollinator habitat or even carbon emissions, 
um, golf courses are very similar to naturalized areas like parks uh, and, and, and just natural areas, prairie or whatever the background ecosystem landscape is in that region. And so I think that's really the important take home is that you know, by and large, golf courses are, are green spaces, and they're, they're green spaces taken care of by skilled professionals, and you can also play golf on them. So they, they do uh, provide benefits to communities um, outside of just golfers. Cole, for golf courses around the world, certification in the Autobahn Cooperative Sanctuary Program for golf, it still remains kind of the gold standard for demonstrating environmental awareness and taking the extra steps to protect uh, critical ecosystems on or around golf courses. We've all seen the signs when we're out playing golf, Autobahn Sanctuary signs on a course. But could you tell us a little bit about its history, how the program works, and the connection with the USGA behind the Autobahn program? So the USGA started working with Autobahn International in 1991. We provided some funding to start the Autobahn Cooperative Sanctuary Program, and there were some follow-up projects to actually directly monitor habitat or, or study its various things, and things like BioBlitz, where they do you know annual bird counting on golf courses. The USGA supported that for many years, as you know other organizations did. But so essentially, this started in 1991 for golf courses, and it's a you know it's a great program that advances environmental stewardship uh, and it's there they have five key areas right environmental planning wildlife and habitat management chemical use reduction and safety water conservation and then water quality management and then communication right so those are their C six key focus areas for the um, Audubon Cooperative Sanctuary Program. And if, if a golf course is interested, you know, they become a member, someone from Audubon comes out and helps them um, identify what their resources and potential liabilities are in the golf course, and they set specific goals for that property. Uh, and that's, that's essentially how you reach certification. And it's, it's important I agree with you that it's an important, you know, kind of gold standard of, of environmentalism in golf because, you know, we've seen through some of the initial reports from that program that golf courses, of which there are about 2,000 now, I believe, that are certified in the program, you know, they have more naturalized areas. So there's more habitat for native uh, plants and, and animals. They use less water. They use less fertilizer. They use uh, fewer chemicals. So we do see real benefit in the back end um, for people that are involved in this program. And so I think it's, you know, been a really neat thing that the USGA has been involved in, and it's great to see it continue today. Absolutely. And we're going to have a little information on the BioBlitz. It, it's coming back this year after a little bit of a pause due to COVID. Okay. But they're bringing it back this year. It'll be the month of June. And if anyone's interested in that, we'll have some information in the April 21st issue of the Green Section Record. Just how important do you think these preserved woods, lakes, wetlands, and other areas are for wildlife and it's not just a place to lose golf balls, right? <laughs> they actually serve a, a important purpose and, and make a difference to the local ecosystems. Yeah, I think that's right, John. I mean, the, the naturalized areas are, are one, like you said, I, I think you said it well, it's really easy for a, for a, for a golfer or anybody on property to understand that this naturalized area is it's the background ecosystem so it's it's providing a space for those native plants and animals to exist and you know habitat continuity um, is one of the biggest problems facing wildlife uh, in 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 the urbanizing world right so if you think about essentially metropolitan areas in the middle of 
of otherwise natural landscapes, uh, well in among farmland and everything like that, we, we, we just see discontinuous habitats for wildlife. And one of the best ways to conceptualize this is, you know, the, the, the monarch butterfly, right? It's a really unique animal and it's in that its migration takes it from Mexico, you know, up to Canada through the Great Plains of the United States. And so without a continuous habitat and, and the milkweed that they rely on, that animal cannot complete its life cycle. And that's why it has been in decline. And so that's, you know, been a very visible way that, you know, the USGA and other organizations have talked about the importance of these naturalized areas, but it goes beyond monarch butterflies, right? That's just kind of the, the poster child, but it's the, these, these habitats, if they're constructed in the right way as pollinator gardens, you know, they can, um, they can provide habitat for all types of pollinators. Uh, and, and not just insects either. We've supported some work, you know, at Loyola Uni University of Loyola, Chicago, to understand, you know, what are the best ways to improve the habitat of, of waters on golf courses for my the microorganisms that live on golf courses, and how do we provide habitat for bats, right? And so there, there's all these different ways over the years with different organizations that the USJ has tried to understand the way animals interact with golf courses. And, you know, overall, by and large, these naturalized areas are important to provide habitat for animals. And so at that face value alone, I think it's really easy to understand why they're important. But there's there's a, an indirect effect as well in that anything that we're taking out of, out of management, you know, less turf that we're watering, fertilizing, um, potentially using pesticides on, is going to reduce the bottom line for the golf course. And it's going to reduce the risk or the potential ecosystem disservice that a golf course could provide if, if, you know, if an accident happens. So that's kind of the other benefit of these naturalized areas is it it continues to help balance the scale on optimizing resource use for golf. No doubt, Cole, we can't have a conversation on golf and the environment without touching on water. It's becoming more and more of a hot topic everywhere and not just out west anymore. The USGA Green Section has been tasked with putting into action an initiative regarding water resource conservation. Can you kind of tell us how this came about? Who's involved? What are some of the key steps you, you're going to take to address water use and, and golf? And just kind of the overview of what's going on with water and golf. Yeah, so the, the USGA, the green section, have been focused on water conservation for a long time. Um, really, again, if you go back, uh, I'm, I'm giving a lot of lip service to Drs. Piper and Oakley today, but if you go back to the beginning, right, the first kind of um, uh, issues of what we now call the green section record, we're talking about and acknowledging the most efficient ways to irrigate putting greens is what they're talking about a lot. And it was, you know, at that time it was dragging around a, a, a cart or something and applying water and, you know, talked about generally this is done at night, but there was acknowledgement that even then, oh, Bermuda grass requires less water than, than these cool season grasses we're using. So it's something that people have been studying for a long time. Um, and and then you go to, I'm, well, I'm going to give lip service to Dr. Grau again as well. I mean, in like the 1950s, he, he I just love it. He wrote this article that's just called Save Water, right? And so it's just, we we continue to talk about essentially two things in golf course management more than anything else, and that's um, increasing costs and the need to save water. And so, um, again, it's just something that's been around for a long time. Um, but when we were challenged, you know, by by Mike Warner, CEO, to to think about how um, golf courses might 
you know, drastically change the way they irrigate or, 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 or save water, you know, we, we were ready because of the work that's, that's been done by, by our collective predecessors. You know, we, we always stand on the shoulders of the generation before us. And this is certainly a case where, again, we've benefited from, from all of the work that's been done. And so th this initiative is really a, a translation initiative it's a in, in academia you know we talk about this this valley of death where you get the research results out of university and do you, do you get them to industry do you get them into practice and so we're trying to help get some of this stuff through the through the valley of death and and that's really what this is about is working with golf courses taking these things that we know work well uh, and, and and getting them in, into practice more and more and then telling the story of people that are already doing this very well um, or people that decide to you know adopt some of these strategies because we're helping them and then we can document the differences and again hopefully continue to tell that story and encourage other people to consider some of these strategies and novel ways to save water it, it is important to kind of it, it's fun i should say to talk about all of the really techie things that are included in this initiative. But it's important to, I think, boil it down to the foundational things that you have to think about when you when you manage water on a golf course. I mean, John, you are a superintendent and, and you know that, that you can't improve the way you do something if, you, if you're not measuring how much of something you're using. If you can't quantify it, you can't improve. And so it really gets at the basic level to, to thinking about how much water you're using and, and are there ways you can improve? Can, can you irrigate less turf? Is your irrigation system adjusted properly? Are the nozzles worn? How old is it? Are there leaks? Are we irrigating cart paths and parking lots? Um, so that's kind of the basic level. And if we're not doing that, if we haven't set the table, then we can't even talk about some of these, I'll say, fancier technologies and strategies. Um, after that, I, you know, I, some of the key things that we think are important, again, are right-sizing the, the playing corridors of the golf co course, making sure irrigated acreage is only that which is required. And there are examples of golf courses that are open for championship play and um, daily play, and they're only about 50 acres of irrigated turf, and that's, that's much less than many golf courses out there. So, so this is, that's a way that I think we can improve very easily. Well, not easily, because it's, it's, not, it's not easy or cheap to take turf out of play. It's, it's an expensive project that has to be you know, thoughtfully approached. Not easy, but possible, right? And then beyond that, we want to get drought tolerant turf in place, right? And we continue to see golf courses that, that are able to, to change from cool season to warm season grasses. They, you know, we know that's a 20, 30% savings maybe, and, and we continue to see that time and again. So making that process easier and continuing to extol those benefits, I think is going to be a big part of this program. Uh, and then after that, it's, um, it, well, and I should take a step back. It's not just warm season grasses. There's areas where we can't grow warm season grasses, right? Just because they don't have the cold tolerance to persist in Northern climates. And so um, we need to continue to advance in that way as well and, and say, hey, warm season grasses are not going to be for everybody, but there are drought tolerant cool season options. And, and so we need to think about that as well. After that, it's just all the different ways that, that you can manage irrigation and apply it precisely only when and where needed. And so this, this again, includes things like using weather data, ET-based irrigation to, to, to have a more informed irrigation strategy than, you know, if we're just turning the sprinklers on because it's Wednesday, um, then we're, we don't have a very thoughtful approach about irrigation. Using um, site-specific triggers for irrigation, like uh, soil moisture sensors, you know, that 
that that's the easiest way to save water, right? In an area where you get rain, if you can stretch the periods of irrigation between rains, um, you're going to save water. And an easy way to do that is setting a, a lower threshold of soil drying with a soil moisture sensor and letting it trigger the irrigation. Not for the entire golf course, but for hydrozones on the property. And so it's that site-specific irrigation that, that I think also can help. And then there are things that, that I think we can advance that haven't caught hold in the turf industry for one reason or another that I, that I hope we can figure out because they have potential to help. And these are things like subsurface strip irrigation. Right. This is something that superintendents, I think, are familiar with from from landscape beds. Really, it's on the surface there. It's just under the mulch. But we see it in, in bunker faces. Right. And, and it sometimes is used to to irrigate those areas. And so this is just right. The, the perforated tube that's underground. I shouldn't say perforated. The tube underground with emitters at specified spacings and just applies water directly to the root zone. Right. And so we've seen some success in recent years. Um, on tees, and it's becoming more common on these small isolated tees, where you can save 50 to 80 percent water, you know, just by using um, subsurface drip compared to sprinkler irrigation. So the thought is, can we scale that? Can we put it in fairways, roughs, and irrigate more area with the subsurface drip and and save water? And because of the potential, I think it's important to to try to figure it out. Um, whether costs or other things preclude all golf, golf courses from doing this remains to be seen. I think in water stressed areas, it'll be an important strategy, um, but I don't think it's going to be for everybody. And will and I and I also don't think the savings will be quite as high as you know, when we're replacing sprinkler irrigation on, a, on an isolated tee. Because if you think about those small tees where the sprinkler probably throwing water further than the tee box and we're overspraying in every direction, you know, that's a big source of the savings. But you, you still are saving water from directly applying water to the root zone because of less evaporation, right? So there's, there's a definite benefit. If we can figure it out and, and make it make sense, I think it'll help people save water. So that's kind of my my summary of this water initiative is it is really about thinking holistically about water and making sure we're taking care of the table stakes, but then we can add on these these other strategies to continue to save water for people that really need it. And so if golf courses have water conservation goals, you know, we're, we're here um, and, and we want to try to help apply this research in various regions and, and, and see what we can do. And that's really what it's all about. I think you summed it up well, Cole, and I know the USGA will bringing the, be bringing the full resources of the green section to bear on this project, and we brought on Mateo Serena. We'll be making big contributions to this project as well. Yeah, Mateo, so he's that's his full-time job is working on this water initiative. So I, I, thanks for saying that. I mean, the, the USGA leadership really stepped up when we said, yeah, we, we accept the challenge. I don't know that we had a choice, but we accept the challenge. And, and so we asked for support via hiring somebody like Mateo, and we're able to get that. And, and also important to point out that, you know, the agronomists that are, especially in the West, you know, Corey Isom and Brian Whitlark and Paul Jacobs, I mean, these are people where they're working with golf courses every day. That are that are dealing with water uh, conservation uh, challenges or, or, or desires or needs, and so we're learning from them as well. You know, the, the agronomists are, are helping golf courses adopt some of these strategies, and we're learning what they're doing. And all of this is going to inform this initiative. Cole, we've talked a lot about how superintendents and turf researchers can help improve golf course from the sustainability point of view. But what can, what are one or two ways golfers can help as well? 
the biggest thing that I think we can do is is think about what we're asking of superintendents. Most of the strategies and knowledge to to save resources. So we've talked about water a lot today. Let's just change the change the script a little bit and talk about fertilizer, right? If if we tell a superintendent we want them to use less fertilizer, they know how to do that, and they're still going to provide a pretty good product with less fertilizer. So it come it's incumbent on the golfer at that point to understand what that means for the golf course, and so. That's really what it's about is, is you know, from a research standpoint, we're trying to optimize playing conditions and resource use. And from a, from a playing standpoint, the golfer needs to optimize their expectations with what they're asking a superintendent to do. And I, th- I think that's the most important message. And secondarily, if, if a golfer has environmentalism interests or a slant, you know, they should be vocal about it and help their golf course um, find programs like Autobahn, Monarchs in the Rough, a uh, best management practices project from the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America, you know, find these things and, and, and make them known and important in your, in your golf club or course if they're not already, and, and then support the superintendent in adopting these things. I think it's, it's always a risk to, to do some of, um, to take on some of these initiatives. And so we've got to have a little bit of flexibility and maybe a higher threshold for pain as we're trying to figure some of these things out. So that's what I think about when I think about what golfers could do. Absolutely. And you mentioned the Golf Course Superintendents Association BMP initiative that they started a a few years ago. So that's complete as of a couple of years ago. And really, those manuals are a great resource and also an educational resource for superintendents. You send that up to the Green Committee and just let them poke around in that. It can... It's not coming from you anymore. It's coming from National Association of the Superintendents and, and the State Association. So it carries a little more weight in their minds, like a lot of things that you're not trying to, to sneak something by them. So we're, we'll include a link to the to the BMP guides in the show notes as well for anyone who's interested. But I've used it, and it's a great resource. And like we said, all 50 states now have state, state-specific manuals for superintendents, and some of them are really comprehensive and terrific. And the GCSA is now working on you know a process to apply them for a facility-specific um, version of the state BMP manual. So that work continues for sure. Excellent point, Cole. Thank you. As a true scientist at heart, Cole, we'll get you out of here with this one. From your perspective, somebody that's really ingrained in turf research and and the industry, what advances do you see or want to see coming down the pipeline that you think could have a really big impact on golf's environmental footprint and the way superintendents do things? Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be a collection of works from many different specialties, right? We're going to continue to uh, support the breeding of turf grasses. I mean, I, I, I do believe that, you know, identifying and improving these species that require less fertilizer water are susceptible to fewer pests. I mean, that's always going to improve your environmental footprint by growing a plant that requires less and is more resilient. And we gain a little bit every generation. And if the pests, if they're biological, they change every generation too, right? So we can't take our foot off the gas on a plant improvement initiative. We have to continue working on that and supporting the breeders that are have done such a great job um, uh, providing, you know, good plant materials today. So that's like definitely going to be foundational. Um, but after that, you know, we've seen increase in, in you know, data-driven management, right? And I think we've always had data-driven management. You know, superintendents have always had um, some method to, to tell them 
whether or not they need to do more or less of something, right? Whether it's how firm something feels, even how wet the soil feels versus now doing it with a, with a TDR. Um, but we're getting more refined in the way we use data. And one of the biggest challenges with using lots of data is managing that data. And if you are very savvy right now today in data uh, collection and, and, and management to inform your turf management, you might have you know several different avenues of data coming in and it's it's difficult to organize it all and so the data processing and providing a recommendation that a that a superintendent can can make a decision from is something that we need to continue to improve and so you know that's that's a a specialty outside of just turf research and so we're going to need to continue to engage those communities and and learn from them um, and there's going to be, you know, other just physical technologies as well, you know, from things like uh, autonomous mowers and GPS guided sprayers. I mean, all of these things are going to change the way that turf is managed and turf will respond differently to being mowed very, very frequently with an autonomous mower compared to being mowed a few days a week with with uh, with the traditional, you know, kind of five plex fairway mower. So um, all of these things are, are going to change not only the way we manage turf, but it might change the turf community as well. So we're going to have to continue to integrate all of these different um, knowledge streams. And, and if we do that, you know, efficiently, um, you know, that, that's really how we're going to continue to improve. It'll be fun to see where it all goes. I remember starting out and some of the old timers would still have some apprehension about putting a roller on their greens. <laughs> I'm not ruining my greens with that roller. <laughs> so our green section award winner, Rocka Swan, just mentioned rolling greens is now considered a primary practice for putting greens. So back 40 years ago, no, 50 years ago, nobody could have envisioned that. So it'll be fun to see where this autonomous technology and some of the machine learning things that are going on and AI, it'll, it'll be fun to see where we go. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, you mentioned rock and you, you sparked a, another thought here. Like, I think another really important thing that we're doing in the data collection stream is, is actually making some of these prior benchmarks meaningful. And so an example is this like organic matter project that, that the green section and some external researchers have been working on is that, you know, we have these kind of squishy recommendations for how much soil organic matter you should have in greens. But we know that the way the number that's reported from a lab can be very variable based on how it was collected and how it's processed. And so that's another example of how we're going to continue to improve turf management is by, by standardizing that sampling process and by really creating, um, you know, better normal curves or distributions for what to expect for something like soil organic matter on different species in different ecoregions at different times of year. Uh, and in response to different stresses, I mean, that that's, going to be the way that we we're just going to continue to have more resolution about what we know about these systems and so those are kind of the really really fun projects to see move forward and change the way we think about things well said dr thompson i think that's a good place to leave it again dr cole thompson director of research at the usga green section it's been fun talking turf with you ahead of earth day and all things turf research and we'll we'll have to get you back on a little down the road and have another conversation Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks, John. Take care. That's it for another episode of the USGA Green Section podcast. 
Please share, subscribe, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And keep up with our latest content on Twitter and by subscribing to the Green Section Record, our digital publication that's published twice a month and covers all things golf course management.